and welcome to episode 24 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 13th of November 2017. I'm Joe, and with me are Jesse. That'll be me. Phelan. That'll be also me. And Ike. I am forced here against my will. <laughs> yes. Thanks to Red Bull, you're with us. Um, so let's start off with a bit of news. And let's talk about Conservancy and the Software Freedom Law Center. How can I summarize what is on the face of it quite a boring legal thing, but may actually have some significant consequences? So Software Freedom Law Center originally helped set up Conservancy and now wants their trademark back because they have fallen out for reasons that are not abundantly clear at this present time. It's definitely nothing to do with VMware's lawsuit and the Linux Foundation funding SFLC. Nothing to do with that. <laughs> well, the Linux Foundation did actually say that that is not true, that they have got nothing to do with it. They have officially said that, and therefore you have to believe them because that's how the world works. Was it only by audio or text that you saw this, i.e., was there a lot of winking going on that nobody <laughs> added? Fingers behind their back crossed. Yeah. Mm, don't know. But this is right on the heels of the Conservancy coming out and saying that their their number one target isn't to be uh, judicial about things and take people to court. They want to s- settle everything amicably and come to a you know, comfortable, chummy agreement, whereas surely the law centre is thinks that number one thing should be taking people to court. So I can understand where this, you know, their discrepancy comes from. Litigious is the word you were scratching for there. It was, yeah. So one is very litigious and one is very not. And and they, you know, that's why they're not best buddies. Ike, it was you who brought this to my attention. Yeah, I mean, it sort of exploded over Reddit. And then you saw you saw the first one, like the Conservancy one. It's like, okay, this is a bit of drama. Let's see where this goes. It sounds really, really bad. And then the SFLC put up this post. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> like, that was basically the TLDR summary of everything they felt about. It was like, wait, what What? What? <laughs> what the fuck just happened? And I, I was sort of on the side of the Conservancy guys when I first read that. But after reading the SFLC thing, it seems like it's all blown a little bit out of proportion. And I know that I'm going to be burnt at the stake for like supporting a side on this. So I'm not really supporting a side, but it does kind of seem that the conservative guys like just blew this up completely because the SFLC is saying, well, we've been trying to talk to them for ages. They don't talk to us. We were left with no choice but to actually go about this the legal and proper way because nobody was talking to us and all of a sudden there's this massive post-reactionary to what was their fault in the first place. That's kind of the way that it's reading. So I don't know, it's kind of like two toddlers in a sandbox throwing bricks off each other's heads at the moment. Like it just seems absolutely fucking ridiculous. But it it shouldn't be this way. Like if, if these are the guys that we want defending us like when stuff goes wrong in the open source world and the pair of them are hurling fucking Legos at each other is a little bit concerning. Lego is never plural. That Yeah. Where do you buy your Legos? You go to the shop and you first go to the ATM machine and put in your pin number. You know. Triggered. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> yeah, you shouldn't have. But, but in all seriousness... This doesn't look good for either of them. You're right. It doesn't look good for the whole open source free software. Image and perception, it's really bad. Yeah. I don't know why we care about that so much because, I mean, it's not like the likes of any 
proprietary company does any better anyway. So I don't know. I think we're just being as equal as they are. So I suppose. But what does it look like? What does the world look like where the law center gets their way and revokes the trademark? What do consumers call themselves? How can you trademark software freedom? <laughs> but I don't oh, even wow. know how they can claim that they need to give it back. I mean, that just seems ridiculous. It's all very confusing. I don't really care either way, but we just need a swift resolution to this. I don't want to see this drag on and give us loads more to talk about. As much as it would make interesting content, I, I, I want this to go away, and I want the interesting content to be what we're going to be talking about in a bit with um, innovation and actual work happening, not just boring fucking politics. Which we will still hereafter refer to as legal fucking. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've seen from the uh, SEO stuff that uh, the American legal system is swift and just. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they've got they've come back to life again, haven't they? Oh man, yes. I had to talk about that as well as this conservancy thing on land, and it meant having to like learn all these legal terms and stuff. And I just don't have enough fucks to give about boring legal shit. Yeah, I mean, I know some legal terms. I believe SEO comes from the Latin to mean to permanently have anyone involved in Linux in court in the hopes of getting money back out of it. Yeah, pretty much. But that, I don't think the Sky versus um, IBM thing is actually going to be very interesting because it's not going to affect anyone other than IBM. They, originally, they were thinking about, um, you know, they were trying to take on other Linux vendors like Red Hat and stuff, but by the looks of the judgment recently, that's not going to happen. So I don't think we have to be too worried. Yeah, now it's like refocused around uh, partner access to IP, that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, I suppose we will inevitably talk more about this when we actually find out what the fuck went on here and who fell out with who over what. But I suppose we'll better move on from legal corner. Let's talk about Canonical joining the GNOME Advisory Board. Yay. Well, it is them being an active member of the GNOME community, which has got to be good, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, they're going to be providing funding and advice, actual advisory to them. Um, so they are invested in the desktop in a different way than they were before. They're sort of shifting that focus literally upstream. So I think that's good, really. One of the things that Ubuntu has said they will um, provide GNOME is all their information on user feedback and and user experience of testing of the desktop. And I, I do wonder, not necessarily what use that will be to GNOME, but whether they would listen to it and see it. Because obviously they've come at the GNOME 3 as a, a different paradigm from GNOME 2 and probably think their desktop works quite well, thank you very much. And what do you need from Ubuntu or Canonical that could prove you know, fundamental changes in the way that people use desktops. It, it seems like it's a bit late. Uh, useful for them to provide and, and very good for them to offer up that information, but a, a bit late, unfortunately. Well, what Ubuntu has to offer is a massive install base. Because, all right, not yet because the LTS hasn't come out, but come April next year and beyond, they're going to have hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of desktop users and and that is invaluable. Yeah, can't disagree with that at all. Absolutely. If you're if you're going to release something new and you've suddenly got more users than you ever had put together, I don't think is a, a completely out of uh, context thing to say. Then you're obviously going to get a lot more information back, a lot more bug reports, a lot more 
um, feedback and what have you. But but I was talking about the the user experience testing that Canonical had done when they were looking at Unity and, and how that was working. And I wonder what you can actually tease out of that into a an already well-defined desktop paradigm. Well, you can definitely take stuff out of that because, all right, Unity was a different experience, but what you've learned from that can be applied to GNOME. It can be applied to XFCE or KDE or whatever, you know. It's, it is valuable information that they are now sharing with the GNOME Foundation. Well, but if, if, the, if the feedback comes back and says, you shouldn't have a, uh, an application launcher, are GNOME going to ditch like a fundamental part of their experience? I can understand if it says, oh, maybe you should have slightly bigger icons for the uh, Wi-Fi connector. And you go, all right, we can do that. That's easy. It's not, not going to change too much. But if, if there are real fundamental ways in which the desktop operates... That's the way GNOME have set their stall out, and that's the way it's going to be. I think they're only going to be tweaking the edges rather than having major basic design changes. Yeah, but if you've got a lot of data, you don't necessarily have to have knee-jerk reactions to that data. You can kind of look at that through the lens of what you're already doing and learn lessons of stuff you should be doing, stuff you shouldn't be doing. And it's not as black and white as an application launcher, people don't like that, let's get rid of it. It's more like, why don't they like it? What aspects of it don't they like it? And how can we apply that to make our things subtly better? All right, well, it sounds like you've got a, a positive view on this uh, collaboration, which is, which is, I think, overall, definitely a good thing. I just couldn't quite see how that would work, but it sounds like there is there are things to be teased out, like you said. But also, I think, that, as you touched on, the major point is that GNOME gets a huge user base and it validates GNOME as a you know a desktop environment. And it has all this feedback that will come from Ubuntu users using it, which is is going to be a good thing. Yeah, albeit not the stock version of it. So I don't know to what extent that makes it less valuable, the data. But it's not that different, is it? Well, I suppose it's a bit different. Well, it's different enough that it it looks different. It has that horrible Ubuntu uh, desktop <laughs> icons. It has all those kind of weird Ubuntu colors. Uh, and, you know, they've sort of generally taken the the quite nice default GNOME and, and sort of made it all, all horrible Ubuntu-y. So what you're saying is they need a new theme and new icons. They could definitely do with a new theme and new icons. Actually, when I say that GNOME had... Uh, nice icons and things i'm thinking back to my antigos install that had uh some of the flat icons so the default gnome ad waiter is it yeah yeah well good job shotworth's got so much money and he can spend loads of it on a new theme and icons or oh no no maybe they'll just get the community to do it for free looking at you ike you're trying this on so you can't exactly complain about it I asked for wallpapers. <laughs> but if somebody makes me a theme as well, you know. <laughs> yeah. Just putting it out there. But like these two stories totally contradict each other, don't they? On the one hand, you've got Canonical joining the GNOME advisory board, doing their bit and investing in the desktop, proving me wrong when I said that they were basically abandoning it to the community. Who was right when that was? Uh, was it me and Jesse? I think it was. Yeah, but then this other story that now they're looking for community artwork for a new theme and icon set, and they're not going to pay for it, and they're going to have it as a contest. Yeah, nice one. Well, that kind of backs up my point, doesn't it? So it's they're sending mixed signals here, I think. So they've always had a wallpaper contest. So you're always like when there's a, a LTS, you have this wallpaper contest, and they probably release their standard seven or eight slightly different shades of orange and purple 
and then there's some nice photos that people have taken you might want as your wallpaper uh desktop what have you and it's not purple remember it's aubergine <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> pardon, yeah. pardon me Eugene, yeah. yeah or maybe a black one that joker put on um and they're just extending that slightly more so that people have more uh creativity they can bring to the project and be part of the community so that's that's just embracing people joe communitizing the community yeah yeah i mean they actually get to have their feedback look look at any linux desktop out there almost all of them are different but there are like major themes that arise aren't there like a uh, arc adapter uh flat flat people get together you get like a commonality around the theme and perhaps instead of trying to design a theme for the people they're trying to see what the people would give them that worked for them for the majority because it would gain its own popularity and following wouldn't it yeah and you end up with either you end up with three options as far as i can see of what they want to do either like you say joe spend some money do it in-house come up with a bespoke theme go out and pick one that's already out there you end up looking like everyone else, unfortunately, and people will probably criticize you for just picking one off the shelf or try and make a new one via the community like they're doing. And so I don't think the second one's a sensible option because you end up looking like everyone else and Ubuntu has quite a distinctive uh, visual appearance. And doing it in-house... All right, it does seem like the cheap way, the one the way they've done it. I can't work out how to make it sound any different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the question I have is, what's wrong with the one they've got now? And Jesse, you don't like it. It's old. Yeah, it looks so 90s. What's wrong with being old? It's dated. All right, you use XFC. So if you can just remove yourself from this conversation, and right, we okay. will just continue. <laughs> yeah, look at flat icons. Look at the way that um, iOS and Android are going. Look at the way that KDE is going. Everything sort of slicker and slimmer and less shadow and less 3d mini effects and things like this it, it's just yeah there's a there's a crispness and whether or not in the fullness of time it all comes all the way back round who knows but you don't want to be waiting for that fullness of time to come round. you want a, a fresh crisp flat minimal kind of look the first thing i always do oh, here we go <sighs> second second because <sighs> you have to set that fucking black wallpaper first yeah, that's true. I'm talking about when I'm forced to use Windows, right? The first thing I do is adjust for best performance. And that gives you proper old school Windows 98 look or 2000 look or whatever. I don't give a flying fuck what it looks like. Get that classic start menu on there. Whoa. Yeah. Do you have a beige desktop tower? <laughs> <laughs> He's <laughs> got that horrible faded, like it's been in an old pub for years. It just looks like the smoked ceiling. With, with the flat plastic on a different color than the metal because it <laughs> yeah. fades differently. Is it an e-machines? Come on, be honest with us. <laughs> My desktop computer is a £10 black basic case. Jesus, that's cheap. Yeah. Or is that weight? Don't convert it to euros. It'll be out of date by the end of the show. Yeah, true. Anyway, right, uh, let's move on from that. So, Ike, you've been making more news then uh, with this Steam um, LSI stuff and snaps. And uh, without too much detail, what's the story? Well, I mean, we can avoid his detail because I think I've worked this out. I think I know what this is. Oh, uh, oh, oh. <laughs> SnapD is the uh, thing that you have to install to get snaps working. And they released a way of having a low-level snap to make your system look like an entirely different system. So they've made one of those to make it look like Solus underneath, even though you might be running on top of a different operating system. And then, um, and then you put another snap on top of that 
that looks at that first snap and thinks it's on Solus. Am um, I right? Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, close. All right. So, Where's I wrong? <laughs> the base snap is Solus. Like, it genuinely is Solus in that base snap. It's not like it looks like. It literally is Solus in that base snap. Yeah, but if you're running on Ubuntu, then effectively you're running Solus on top of Ubuntu. In a way. So the, the base snap contains all the libraries and everything that the, I guess you would call it the app snap, which just sounds fucking absurd. But the the app portion of it would be like Linux Steam integration and Steam itself. So at their low level, that part you were sort of right on, like they depend on the, the Solus runtime. But it doesn't see any of the libraries, right? doesn't see any of the libraries or anything from the Ubuntu system. It just sees the stuff from the Solus runtime. So you wouldn't be using any of your libraries or anything that came from Ubuntu. The only thing they would share would be like the NVIDIA driver, and that would be it. So it doesn't have to find all of its drivers and all of its infrastructure, if you will, uh, from the snap. It can also look at the, the host operating system. Uh, no, only for the NVIDIA driver. It's literally the only thing in this particular mode it's allowed to have. So like, you know, like the NVIDIA uh, libgl portion. So those libraries would be made accessible to the snap and then it's allowed to use those. And uh, why are they special? Um, Because they have to basically match your host version. I mean, there are other ways of doing it, but effectively they have to match your host version of the driver. So those are exposed, like they're sort of like mounted within the snap and those are exposed. And so instead of using like the Mazer that's packaged within the snap, it would then use your host driver so that you could actually talk to the X server and have the acceleration and play games. <laughs> but you've mentioned that NVIDIA, but why isn't that the same for ATI cards? And The only other proprietary driver out there is the AMD GPU Pro, which nobody really supports that well. It's been removed from a lot of Linux distributions. You can't distribute it, which is absurd. Um so people are only going to support the proprietary NVIDIA driver and the open source AMD drivers are actually really, really good now. Whereas the ones for uh, NVIDIA cards, eh, not so good. <laughs> right, so it's, so it's the proprietary nature of the NVIDIA cards that mean it has to be... Right, so those get exposed. But for everything else, my head went straight away to there's MasterCard. <laughs> but for, for everything else, like that would be inside the snap itself. So you'd have Mazelib and it would have like all of its... like. Um, the, the R600, R300, the NVIDIA stuff, it would have that as fallback, like in the Intel drivers, all of that inside it. Right. So it would only ever need to access the proprietary driver if it existed, which is negative in the freedom dimension. And where do you install your game once you've got your Steam Snap installed? Does it, like, it sounds stupid, but does it install itself into the Snap? Ish. So it gets its own home directory, and you would actually see that as a subdirectory of your home directory called Snap, and then it'd be like under Linux Steam integration. So it's it's off from your normal stuff. So it would have its own private stuff, but we're making it so you can still access other folders and other drives because they're games, they're kind of big. And most people are running on a primary SSD and want to put their games like on a big disc. So that's one of the things that I've been working on as well. Can I ask a stupid question here? So when you are distributing proprietary software like Steam, uh, doesn't that cause licensing issues? I'm not distributing Steam. That's kind of the beauty of it. I'm distributing the Steam launcher, which is then able to download and install itself within the Snap. And then... What, does that go and get a deb from their site or something? So you're allowed... The, the bootstrap 
uh, tarball that comes with it is actually their libraries. It still looks for it, but that's like the Ubuntu runtime libraries, which we end up ignoring anyway. So you're allowed to distribute the Steam launcher package, but you wouldn't distribute like a working Steam in its pre-installed state. That part you can't do. So when you first run it, you get a license agreement box. You get this with normal Steam anywhere. You get a license agreement, you accept it, and then it does the first Steam update where it actually goes and fetches the bits it needs from the servers and then installs it into the local directory, which is like local share Steam by default. And so have you actually had to speak to Valve about this then, or is it just no. something that's in their licensing? No, I mean, you're allowed... The, the normal Steam laundry is, is kind of a stub. It has the shell script which would launch Steam, but it has to go and fetch itself later on. So you're not distributing Steam proper, you're distributing like a, a shim of Steam, and then it installs Steam proper onto your local directory once you've accepted the license agreement. That's what the, the Linux package portion of it's about. You know what this really reminds me of? It's installing mm. software in Windows where you download this tiny EXE that then goes off to the internet. I mean, it's a bit similar, yeah. Like, it has to go and download all its bits. It has to download the binaries. Like, those parts you would never ship yourself. Like, you just you just wouldn't. They don't come with it. So it, it's quite similar. It's, it kind of it is just the bootstrap portion of it. And then it goes and fetches itself. But then it will continue to operate out of the local install. So... It's like a re-entrant script. If it's already installed, it will execute the real thing. Otherwise, it will go and fetch the real thing and then execute it. Fair enough. All right, let's move on um, from the desktop to the server room. And RHEL, Red Hat Enterprise Linux, has got a version for ARM now. So RHEL 7.4 for ARM is here. This is a big, big story, I think. Yeah, the Raspberry Pi needs RHEL. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not quite that, is it? It's for the 64-bit ARM V8 server class. We're, we're talking about a massive shift away from x86 towards ARM, which has seemingly been brewing for about 10 years at this point. It's always around the corner. And now we're actually starting to see it. And it's funny that this news from Red Hat has come in the same couple of weeks as Qualcomm launching a 48-core um, ARM server chip, which is very expensive, but not by um, data center standards. We, I think that we are finally starting to see this move happen, and I think that x86 in the data center, okay, it's not going away right now, but it is eventually going to, and, and now we're starting to see these first steps towards that. So... Um, I know, Ike, you're not going to be able to say much about this, but I think you jumped ship at the right time, mate. I reserve all comment and judgment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. Like, no, you don't work for him anymore. You can, you know, have opinions about the industry as a whole. Yeah, I mean, I, I do see I do see ARM going places. Um, for my world, it's not really that relevant. I know that sounds a bit weird, but it, it's kind of not. And... I think it's going to be a while before we properly see them relevant in the server world. I know a lot of people want to support them, but it comes down to the basic stuff at the end of the day, power management. How much is it going to cost me to run these machines? What's my cost efficiency? What are my heat and what are my electrical costs? What are my cooling costs? There's all of those things to consider, and I still think it's going to be a while. Genuinely, my own opinion, I think we're still going to see a predominantly x86-64 entrenched market for some time. What I think you'd be more likely to see is crossovers between those worlds like parallel chips i think you'd be more likely to see something like that 
Um, and I'm not saying that based on any foreign knowledge or anything like that. I genuinely don't have a shit and clue what those guys are up to. But I think you'd be more likely to see something like that as success in the future, as opposed to this dream that everyone has of miraculously ARM taking over data center, clouds, IoT, everything, you know. I mean, okay, maybe a little bit of IoT. Okay, I'll give them that. But <laughs> I, I just don't see them taking over in the way everyone thinks they're going to do. I, I really can't see it. Fadim, what's your view on this? Well, it's power and heat, I guess. Um, so, I mean, they're saying this thing's 120 watts for 48 cores and uh, 768 gigs of memory. I mean, that's that's insane. Um, my PC sitting here is using 220 right now talking to you. So Yeah, but it's what performance can you get per watt? That's what it boils down to. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, we haven't really seen... A comparison like we it's all very good putting like a oh look we we ran glx gears and we got like what how many frame rate or whatever but <laughs> um you know you really want to see it compare uh, like uh, for peak performance you want to see it run at a continual performance you want to see how the memory loading goes i mean it, there's more than just um you know doing sums quick you know it's it's how you get the data there back and forth how reliable it is over time, all that sort of stuff. You know, I saw, I think it'd be too early to say how good it's going to be, but it certainly looks bloody interesting. And it's got a cool name, which is the most important thing. Firetail. <laughs> it definitely wasn't the guy sitting there at the presentation looking in the Firefox browser going, what the fuck are we going to call it? <laughs> oh, look, there's a fox. Its tail is on fire. Firetail is on fire. Firetail. <laughs> Well, maybe, you know, just had a vindaloo the night before. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> what will I call it? Oh, I feel awfully uncomfortable. <laughs> but one thing that the x86 chips going for them, specifically the Xeons, is the virtualization that's built into them, which, as far as I can see, these new ARM ones don't have yet. So they, they don't have that kind of hardware virtualization, which is what it's all about these days with containerization and, um, you know, uh, Docker and all that shit. Yeah, but it's probably only like that because we've got massively powerful single, well, not single chips, but they used to be single chips or, you know, with small numbers of cores that sit there doing bugger all most of the time. Whereas if you've got 48 cores, you know, you might change how the operating system talks to them all. You might have, you know, you might run more parallel tasks as opposed to one single modular unit, you know. Yeah, if we're all allowed to like just uh, chip our hypothetical hat into the ring, I think what we're going to end up with is... Some tasks are very good for ARM and some tasks are very good for x86. And, and that will take decade to work out or multiple. And, you know, maybe it's super high intensive, always on, you know, computer uh, learning algorithms and things that need this, the full power. Maybe some of these virtualizations you're talking about, whereas other slightly less intensive or not always on, you know, virtual servers and stuff will will be perfect for ARM. It's going to take a while to work it out, but I reckon we're going to end up with a, you know, a 50-50-ish split with something that's really good at ARM and something that's really good with x86, and it just ends up that way, with obviously the caveat that power and heat is, is the way forward, and why people don't just open up all their data settings in Iceland, I have no idea, but... Oh, Greenland. Yeah. Well, like Ike said, like this hybrid approach, potentially, with um, different types of servers on one board, even and yeah, I replicated that myself. I just nailed the Raspberry Pi straight into my motherboard. Problem solved. <laughs> <laughs> You've got yeah. a big little. <laughs> what? 
The big little, that's what they do with the phones, isn't it? Where they have like a, a, a smaller core that's doing some stuff and then a bigger core that's doing other stuff. But um, anyway, I think that to bring it back to Linux, the fact that Red Hat are releasing this now means that they are on the game. You know, they're, they're not going to be left behind and just have this old crusty x86 version only. They're going to have the, the ARM version as well. And so it's a good hedge as far as I can see. And um, anyone who's doing serious data center stuff should be thinking about it. You know, anyone who's making a Linux distro for that. So the likes of SUSE and Canonical. Canonical already have it. Well, yeah. And so there you go. It's, it is clearly at least part of the future, if not the, the whole future. So this episode of Late Night Linux is sponsored by Entroware. And Entroware are a dedicated Linux computer seller based here in the UK. They ship their computers with Ubuntu and Ubuntu Mate 1604 and 1710. And they've got all sorts of machines, quite a lot of laptops, a couple of desktops and a server. And almost all of them are configurable from the CPU and the amount of RAM and the storage and everything. So there's bound to be something to suit your budget. And they've got everything from fairly low-end affordable machines that are good for web browsing and email and stuff, all the way up to high-end powerhouses with the latest NVIDIA chips that are ideal for graphic design and 3D art and video editing and machine learning, that sort of thing. And they ship machines to the United Kingdom, Republic of Ireland, France, Germany, Italy, and Spain. And the most important thing is this is a company who actually cares about Linux. It's not some side project for them some afterthought this is all they do all they do is sell machines running linux and ubuntu and they make sure that they're going to run it properly so if you do buy one of the machines then do mention us at checkout late night linux and they'll know that we sent you so go to entroware.com for all your linux computing needs so onto a bit of admin then and thank you to everyone for supporting us on paypal and patreon i kind of did a bit of a sales pitch for that last time and it seems to have worked so thank you everyone um, if you want to join them, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support and give us some of your hard-earned money and keep us going. And if you want to get in contact, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash contact for all the ways to get in touch. I just want to plug a video that I made with my Nexus 7 and Nexus 9 doing an OTA update and the Nexus 9 taking like 10 times as long to do it. And I'm not sure whether my Nexus 9 is a dodgy one or not, or whether they're all that slow. Now, I've had some feedback from people suggesting that the problem is that the Nexus 9 has got encrypted storage by default, and it may be possible to turn that off. Um, but yeah, I want to know, if you've got a Nexus 7 and a Nexus 9 lying around not doing much, then if you could kind of do some experiments akin to what I did, install Lineage, wait a week for the OTA, and then do them at the same time, I know it's a big ask, but um, if you could do that and then compare it to my video and let me know whether I've got a turkey or whether all Nexus 9s are a bit shit, then that would be nice. Um, right, so we have got uh, an interview again. So let's hear that now. We're now joined by Daniel Foray of the Elementary OS Project. So welcome, Daniel. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. So can you tell us very briefly what is Elementary OS? Sure. So uh, in a nutshell, uh, Elementary OS is an open source uh, Linux-based desktop operating system. And uh, we've been working really hard recently on building out a, a special open source app developer ecosystem to go along with it. 
no mention of Ubuntu then? Um, I mean, we typically don't call out Ubuntu because it's kind of like an implementation detail. If we went down that road, then it would be like, oh, this is, you know, X server base Linux base GNU slash Pulse Audio slash, you know. Yeah, fair enough. So one thing that jumps out at me when you go to your website is that you are totally unashamed of making money from it. From the, the minute you want to download it, you are confronted with this dialogue of pay us, please, for this. You can pay zero if you work out that you can put zero in there. And I'm not knocking you for this, but it just it's unusual in this space for people to be so just, well, unashamed of trying to make money. Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess the way that I see it is, um, you know, you probably get paid at your job. <laughs> you know, th- this is my job, and and it costs us money to do what we do. You know, it costs us money to provide servers and stuff, and Ike knows all about that. It's not free to do this, um, and uh, we run a payroll, you know, and it costs us money to do that. And and so when people um, choose to pay for their download, they're supporting our development, and they're helping us continue to deliver uh, new updates and features and new versions. So can I ask how that's all going then? Obviously not figures, but like how are things financially? Well, uh, I mean, like I said, this is my full-time job. Uh, We've got uh, three people on payroll currently, two full-time and one part-time. And then also we, um, when we have room in our budget, we kick money up to our our upstreams. We try to do that as much as possible. And uh, we do uh, bug bounties and stuff like that. We've been able to fund... Uh, a few different uh, in-person meetups, which has been really cool. So, um, you know, we're we're not making a ton of money doing this, but the project is sustainable. Solvent is the word that springs to mind. Sure. Well, that's good to hear because you kind of see a lot of open source projects like this and you think they're making a bit of money, but is it self-sustaining? You know, are they making enough? And is there enough growth there, I suppose? That's something that presumably you are monitoring, the growth in download stats and stuff like that yeah absolutely and um looking at that kind of stuff i mean so right now is kind of the slow time of the year because we're in between releases and so you definitely see like at release time is where we make um the bulk of our money in the cycle um but if we look at like our uh, release over release stats that so far it's been about um one and a half times with the last time that was at that part of the cycle so there there is steady growth there which has been really good um but like i said this last cycle we added our new part-time employee so hopefully if we keep growing we'll be able to you know expand our staff and and i'd really like to add you know people to do more like support staff and stuff like that as well so was well, it mostly developers at this point uh right now it's uh myself and um i wear a lot of hats i do desktop development i do design i am the hr department i do marketing i do uh customer support um and then we have Cody and he is full time uh desktop development and integration um he uh does all the release management and packaging and uh, builds the actual images and then our part timer is Blake and uh, he's our, our web developer, and he does all the maintenance and support on our website and uh, all of the development and maintenance on the uh, App Center dashboard service. So not to sound too obsessed with money here, but apart from donations, have you got other revenue streams then, or is it all just sort of community support? Basically, what we have is um, the bulk of our income is the pay what you want download on our homepage. And then we also have a Patreon um, and we accept PayPal donations, um, and we sell merchandise, 
Um, and we get, we have a little bit of a, um, a kickback we get from Unix stickers when they do that. And then, uh, also we have the, uh, pay what you want, um, app center stuff. And we do take a, a portion of that. Um, but that mainly just is kind of to pay for itself at this point. Yeah. I definitely want to get back to that. Um, but before we move off the topic of money, um, what proportion of people downloading the ISO actually pay for it then? It's really, really low. Um, I think the last time I checked, it was at about 1%. That's kind of what I would expect then, based on the kind of number of people who support other stuff. People are just used to it being free, right? Yeah. And, and you know, um, it used to be a lot lower. And I think there's things that we can do to get that number up. Um, I think it's a big question of, of marketing in a lot of ways. And we have to make sure that we're communicating the value and, uh, why people should pay and what happens. Like, what do they get? What's the value proposition? Um, and I think that if we do a good job with our messaging and stuff there, that we can, we can get it up a little bit more. So, Ike, have you got any idea what proportion of your users donate then? Uh, no, we don't actually have any form of statistic tracking at all. Like, we don't even know how many downloads there are. Really? No, having a clue. We can sort of guess by looking at how many torrent downloads there were and bandwidth spikes, because we have to keep upscaling. Like, every every few months it's like, ah, now we need a new service. Now it's like, ah, we need a CDN. So there must be people there, you know. But, yeah, no, no idea. Um, Like, if I was to go to a business meeting now, I would be laughed out of it. <laughs> yeah. So I've got some users. How many? More than twelve. But yeah. Um, one thing I was actually going to ask: um, Do you find yourself being impacted by changes in other OSs in terms of you know continuing the money conversation a little bit? Because one thing I found nowadays is incredibly hard to sell software, even if it's not free slash open source, because operating systems are becoming free financially. And the world seems to be shifting more towards being service and data driven as opposed to value for the OS itself. Do you find that to be something that's affecting you at all? So far, I haven't seen it reflected in the numbers, but I absolutely agree that that's a concern. And I think that, um, you know, we need to make sure that we're diversifying where our income is at. And I think that, um, the way forward is, like you said, through through things like more services and things like that, uh, microtransactions maybe even, um, which I guess I would consider App Center to be a form of microtransactions as far yeah. as the way we're looking at it. Um, but yeah, services, things like uh, cloud services are, are, I think, a way forward or um, other kind of services that we can offer. Like we we've talked about maybe a way that we could offer um, a translation hosting service. Um, that would integrate with App Center dashboard or, um, you know, things that we could offer like, uh, consulting or design services or things like that that we could, we could sell to developers or, you know, th- like there's some ideas out there. Um, nothing's really materialized yet, but I, I absolutely agree that, um, it's going to become harder and harder to do the direct sales of the operating system. So would you, would it be fair to say that, I mean, Let's not use the, the word OS here because I think that has some of the wrong connotations here. So if we say platform, I think that's a more appropriate term. Would it be fair to say that the platform is something that gives people a 
a creative and comfortable base to do other things on. So like you would put the, the sexiness, the snazziness and the pull into the platform so that they could actually do other stuff with it that isn't directly related to the platform. Like the platform enables other things, but the platform itself isn't necessarily the marketable asset. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree. I completely agree. And I think that's the way that um, the larger, larger companies are, are moving as well. If you look at, you know, like how Amazon makes their money or, you know, the uh, Apple app store stuff or um, Google's ecosystem, it's, it's all about um, providing a platform and providing um, ways for developers to monetize on your platform and, and kind of letting them go crazy and, um, you know, chaining it up that way. It seems like that's kind of the future of, of how platforms make money. Well, speaking of platforms, the, the big one, we mentioned it earlier, this app center of yours, that's something you've put a lot of time and effort into and you had the meetup and, and that sort of thing. How is that going exactly? Is it going as well as you'd hoped? And, you know, sort of ancillary question, what makes you think you can succeed where Ubuntu failed? I think there's two different things to look at with it. One is kind of the um, return on investment aspect. And in that way, um, right now, the service kind of pays for itself, but um, it's not um, it's not going to be like a primary form of income to support other projects anytime soon. So I think that's still a success if it pays for itself. Um, and then the other way to look at it is uh, how has it added value to the platform and how have users received it and how developers received it. And I think from that point of view, it's been an incredible success. Like our users love it. Um, the developers love it. They love that they can have a tight feedback loop with users. They can publish updates whenever they want. Um, it's, I think, quickly becoming the distinguishing uh, feature of elementary OS as compared to other uh, desktop Linux operating systems. You avoided the Ubuntu question. Oh, sorry. What, what was the Ubuntu part? Well, they tried it, didn't they? They tried to have an app store and it did not work out for them. They had to just abandon it in the end. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I think there's probably like a lot of different factors there. Um, I think one of the big factors probably is like technology was different at the time too. Like we, we benefit a lot now where we have services like Stripe Connect is what we use to power all the payments. And like, that's a thing that I don't think existed when they were trying to do the Ubuntu software center. So, um, payments and monetization was a way bigger technical hurdle for them at that point. Um, we also benefit from the fact that there's like app stream now. So there's a, a kind of an accepted way to do uh, metadata and, uh, you know, rich metadata screenshots and all that kind of stuff. So we really benefit from the technology that's available right now. But I think also um, probably one of the major things that um, that I, I, I don't really think helped them and, and I, I kind of disagree with is especially if you look at like um, the Ubuntu Touch store, it was full of like web apps and and it it was like, oh, we have, you know, so many apps or whatever, but they're all like embedded websites and it was things that people consider junk. And so they weren't excited about the app store because they weren't they weren't real native apps. 
Yeah, they're what I like to call links. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> exactly. So that's something that, that I think that we've been really pushing hard and that um, we've actively resisted change on is that every app that goes into App Center is a native GTK3 application. It's not a web app. It's not a cross-platform port. We don't allow Electron apps or anything like that. They're all original, real applications. No cute then? No. Good job, Phelan's not here. <laughs> <laughs> right, so it's it's got to fit in with the look and feel of the rest of the OS then. Yeah, I mean, that, I think that's the, the big point of it we want to make is that the applications in App Center are ones that developers have specifically built for elementary OS users. And they're going to build that relationship with our users. And it's not something that they just kind of ported and they're going to dump and never update. To come at this with a point of controversy, um, <laughs> not necessarily to say I think this, but I could see how others might think this. It's arguable to say, some might say, that as much as these are open source applications for an open source platform, it's also enabling a proprietary ecosystem of elementary or specific apps. What would your thoughts on that be? You're going to throw that P word at me? Yeah, I mean, you know, people are arguing to ask in the comments, right? So if I yeah. play, quote, devil's advocate, you know, uh, so what would your response to that be? I mean, I, I could see why people could think that way, but I guess I have a couple different counter arguments to that. And one is that um, some of the developers that are publishing their apps in App Center are actively paying attention to other communities and making sure that their apps run on, on other um, Linux desktop operating systems, which I think is totally cool of them to do. Uh, and another one, um, is that from, so that, so that's two angles, right? One is from the developer's perspective. Another is our perspective. And there's, there's nothing that we are doing to stop users from installing applications from other places on elementary OS either. So it's not like a walled garden effect or anything like that. Like there's always going to be, uh, the ability to sideload whatever apps you want. And to what extent is the backend open source then for your app center? A hundred percent. It's completely open source. The, um, so the, the actual service, um, app center dashboard is written in Node.js and it's open source on our GitHub. And the, uh, the client, the app center app itself is open source and it's, it's Vala and GTK plus. Good man. So being based on Ubuntu means that you could have first class snap support, but it doesn't seem to be something that you are actively pursuing like Ike is. Is that fair to say? We're kind of taking more of a wait and see approach for uh, Snap versus Flatpak. And like our stance um, as a company is that we believe that these kind of sandbox containerized application formats are like definitely the future. Like one of these is going to be the future. And we are preparing for a world in which sandbox applications are a thing but we're not really sure which um, horse to back yet. So we, we you know, are talking to the people that are developing the technologies. Like we attended the Snappy Sprint and, and worked with those guys. And, and we have like a few initial snaps of our apps that we've done. Um, I started playing around with the utility to be able to sideload snaps. And I've talked to like uh, Robert Ansel about that. And uh, I know there's a new version of SnapDG Live coming in the next version of Ubuntu that would enable us to do that. So um, the technology is still kind of in progress, I think, um, to have a really like great experience with it. Fair enough. Another thing I wanted to ask you about, and I'm, I'm trying to think of a diplomatic way to say this. So 
there's a clear difference to me between an Ubuntu derivative and an Ubuntu flavor. So take Zubuntu that I'm using right now. That is a project that is an official flavor of Ubuntu. Most of the repos are canonical repos, you know, Ubuntu mirrors, and they are very much dependent on Ubuntu and totally admit that. Whereas elementary OS is essentially similar in that you, a lot of the software security updates and that sort of thing are coming directly from canonical servers. You're not recompiling the binaries. You're not build, building your own packages effectively. And so you are very much dependent on them, and yet you are not that keen to talk about that. You're very keen to appear independent as a project. And that, to me, sort of doesn't really add up. Uh, I mean, if you look at like our website, we've got an open source link in the bottom that shows like the whole stack of like all the different stuff we're based on in, in like our, our marketing messaging, because we're, we're focused on bringing open source to people that are running proprietary operating systems and they like don't care about the underlying tech stuff. Like that's not important to them. So, um, I, you know, that's why it's not part of like our marketing is because it doesn't really mean anything to normal people. Like, it means stuff to us geeks, and we have a page for that. Um, it's not that we want to hide that or anything, because we definitely give shout-outs to Ubuntu, like, all the time on our Twitter and stuff. And, like, um, you know, if there's a security update and stuff, we're always like, you know, hey, the Ubuntu security team released this update, and, like, we're super grateful to them and, and totally totally are happy to talk about how, how awesome our, um, they are, and we're excited to have a good relationship with Ubuntu as our upstream. But... Yeah, it's just, it's, it's kind of like, like I said, the same way of like, um, you know, we don't constantly talk about Linux or Pulse Audio or X. It's just kind of like a tech thing. That's not really what I was getting at there. What, what I was getting at is more, you are dependent on them. And so if they were to go away, for example, then you'd be fucked, basically. Whereas if you were building your own packages, and obviously that's, uh, quite a, a difficult thing to do in terms of resources but instead of expanding into other areas it's it's what i would be looking to do put it that way if i was running a distro that was downstream of something like ubuntu because it's probably not going to go away but i'd much rather be in ike's position which is totally independent totally self-sustaining and so that's my worry like because i look at other ubuntu downstream projects like Linux Mint. And I just, I, I can't help but feel that it's not really a proper distro, if you know what I mean, because it's not building and hosting its own packages. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, um, you know, the, the way we build our ISOs is with um, Debian seeds, uh, made a package seeds. So it's not like a remix ISO or anything. So if Ubuntu, for some reason, disappeared, uh, we'd just rebase our seeds on um, Debian testing, you know, um, which is, it's more difficult than just, but you know that that's kind of the route we would go if that was a thing to happen. So you have a backup plan, is what you're saying? Yeah, I mean that it's it's not like we're um, like I said, it's not a remix. It's not a remix thing. It's not like we download an Ubuntu ISO and then remix it. Change the wallpaper, a new sound theme. <laughs> right, right, and so that's I think it's a there's a technical distinction there between a, a remix and um, like a real distro that that builds stuff from meta packages. But as far as um, like hosting our own packages and stuff, uh, we're actually actively working um, to try to get off of the Launchpad infrastructure more because as our user base grows, we know that it is more of a stress on on their servers and things like that. 
Um, and you know, the people that we've talked to at Canonical have, have said that it's totally cool and they're totally happy with us being a part of their ecosystem. And, and they've actually asked us to use their stuff more. Um, but we would like to be more independent. And so, uh, we're working on trying to get all of our packages that are in a PPA right now into our own hosted repositories and not use PPAs anymore. So that'd be one step that way. But I think it still um, makes a lot of sense and it's more beneficial for us to inherit the Ubuntu repositories as kind of the main repository. Okay, fair enough. Another technical question I've got to ask you that Ike brought to my attention, I think, early on in the run of this show, Late Night Linux, and that is the use of Valor. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> the fact it, that you are pretty much the last people using it and therefore are kind of almost responsible for maintaining it. Ike, tell us a bit more about that. I, I'm My memory is a bit foggy of it. Okay, so this one has caused controversy before multiple times because it is well known that I have a certain stance towards Vala, right? But it doesn't mean that people shouldn't use it. It means that people like me shouldn't use Vala. And my issues personally with Vala come down to the fact that it is, in the politest manner of speaking, it's what you'd call a heap whore. As in, it's, it's the politest way I can put it, right? So if you're doing lower level C, which is what I usually do, then you know the difference between the stack and the heap. Vala cuts some corners so that it doesn't have to worry about local stack storage. So it basically duplicates and copies everything in memory, which makes it a little bit more inefficient. But my main gripe with it is the quality of the C code that comes out with it, in addition to the Vala bindings. They've always been a point of pain. So first, a lot of the stuff I do with Vala it's constantly hitting my head against a brick wall because some of the stuff I want to do, it's just not capable of doing in an efficient manner. Um, for higher level stuff, like GUI apps, and I think this is where Daniel would probably say that for normal GUI apps, devs probably don't and shouldn't care for the stuff that I would work on, which is basically like um, effectively the the infrastructure and glue parts, then I think it's appropriate to say in those instances, Vala just doesn't cut it, but it's, it's kind of a case of using the right tool for the job. And also from my perspective, to me, Vala is all but dead. Whereas to elementary, it's kind of, it's kind of in your court now. Like it's sort of transitioned under your domain from what I've seen, but for me, I mean, I'm a C guy, right? <laughs> I see the code that comes out and it makes me want to cut my wrists. But that aside, I'm more interested in the fact that, okay, you don't have a preference for it personally, mm. but the idea that the elementary OS as a project is effectively maintaining it at this point, and that is... Yeah, now the shepherds, right? Yeah, that that's a lot of, a lot of time and, and resources go into that, don't they? Um, I mean... It's not like, um, it's not like we're taking away resources from other things. I think it's more like the people that were already in the Vala community that we've kind of invited to, to hang out with us kind of thing. Um, and like, um, you know, hosting Voladoc and stuff is, that's just a bill, you know, but it's still like the Vala community that was already there is the ones that are working on that still. 
So we're we're trying to be more involved with the, with the community there and like empower them, but um, it's not like it's taken away from from other stuff we're doing. Um, and and as far as like the livelihood of the project, as far as I understand from talking to the people who are involved with it, like their stance is that the language is feature complete, and so that's why you don't see like major new stuff, but. Um, bug fixes, uh, do go into it. And I was just talking to Rico actually this morning, uh, or well, actually I was overhearing Rico talking to someone else this morning, uh, about he's got some new, uh, Vala release planned pretty soon. So I think it's fair to say that at this point, Vala is basically in a maintenance phase. And the only thing that you could do with it feature wise, I think really would be to stop using a transpiler. Yeah. Uh, and move to LLVM. Now, if, if Vala did that, I would genuinely eat my hat. I would take back all of my remarks because if it stopped compiling C and then compiling that C, you take away so, so many of the problems and you wouldn't have to be explicitly dependent on G object anymore. So if that happened to Vala, that would be a very, very interesting evolution and would probably, you know, give someone people somewhere sane to go as opposed to oh look we got javascript oh no no there's rust now we must have rust as well because everyone seems to have completely lost their shit with every new language that's come out right so having a stable option that was suitable for everyone i think would be cool but you know i mean where is it mainly used gooey stuff and right it kind of already fits the purpose there because nobody really wants to do boilerplate c for glip because it's horrendous yeah, I mean, that's the crux of the problem, right? Is that we need to have a good language that people can write applications in. Like, that's our concern is building an application ecosystem. That's kind of like been our focus from the beginning is building great applications. And, you know, like, like Ike said, it's a tool for the job stuff. You know, if you're going to write some real low level stuff, then C is probably what you want. You know, if you're writing a video game, like it seems like C++ is the tool for the job there. If you're scripting, use a scripting language, you know, like, like it's all it's all what you're what you're comfortable with and and what seems like a good fit for what you're doing. Just make everything electron problem solved. Yeah. Oh god. And then like we can sell them as first class <laughs> citizens as native apps, and we just hide all the Ceph libraries. You yeah. need sixteen gigabytes of RAM to run your text editor. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's collaborative, Daniel. <laughs> yeah. So almost all projects are looking for help moving forward so what have you got planned in the future and and what help do you need with that and how do people get involved if they want to help yeah so we're actually coming up on a really interesting time to get involved um because the new ubuntu lts is uh, started development so um we're going to be working on uh, migrating to that and and hopefully getting a brand new release of elementary os out early next year um where we would always love help like you know migrating to new libraries and stuff like that um, there's of course a big issue tracker to deal with and, and the, all that kind of fun stuff. So if you want to come hang out with us and, and get involved and write some open source code, um, you can go to elementary.io forward slash get dash involved or click the get involved link up in the header and that'll give you a big page with like anything that you could do from, uh, translations to, uh, web development, desktop development, design and, and all kinds of stuff. You said early next year there. Does that mean that it's going to be before or after the 1804 final release? Uh, it wouldn't be before. Um, we're, we're going to do our absolute best to get the release out at the same time as 1804. We're going to try to track the release schedule for that. Um, but, you know, as always, like our release philosophy is when it's ready. If we get to the 1804 release date and there's some like 
absolutely ridiculous bug, then we wouldn't release. We're going to postpone until we fix that. But we're going to try really hard to get it out as as early as possible, um, either at the day or a little bit after of the 18.04 release. Oh, well, I look forward to trying it out and uh, look forward to speaking to you again at some point. Thanks for giving us your time. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's been great talking with you, and thanks for putting up with the grilling, but keep up the good work, though. <laughs> thanks. Yeah, it was great to hear from Daniel and uh, the, the things they're doing over at the Elementary Project. Um, There's a couple of uh, of points I noted down listening to it. The uh, On his homepage, he talked about their, they try and detract or, or take away the sort of nerdy, detailed stuff about open source, which you brought up a couple of times as to how they uh, distance themselves a little bit from Ubuntu. But actually, if you do find the page, it's uh, I think it's called Open Source in the bottom right corner, that it's quite a good showing of the bits of software they're built on top of and the foundations or companies that make those. And then with separate links within those sections as to, as to specifically what bits of code they're using, or at least the, those project pages. So it's the, it's the only time I've actually ever seen it on a distribution where they call out literally what they're set upon in a quite a well laid out hierarchical way from, from bottom to top, you know, all the way from uh, the Linux kernel and GNU all the way up to the, the, the bits of software that they write. So that that was that was a, a good see. Uh, I also had a bit of a question about about Valor. You you gave him a bit of a hard time um, on his choice of Valor. And I I do wonder. You know, Ike, you mentioned that there's always the new hotness in coding, whether it be uh, Rust at the moment. Uh, I wonder whether any code base you decide to uh, use to write or any um, programming language. How how likely is that just to disappear? I mean, was he was were they maybe unlucky that they've picked Valor and its interest has waned and they're now like one of the only projects using it, or was it a bad choice? And and what if you know GTK tomorrow stopped being the hotness and Ubuntu hadn't chosen GNOME and GNOME started to disappear and all that sort of stuff? How much it's as likely with anything, isn't it? I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that they chose uh, Valor. By the way, just want to get that out there. I mean. When they did adopt it, there was absolutely nothing wrong with it. And for their use case, there's probably nothing wrong with Valor. That's why I was very specific about there being a right tool for the job. And the, the state of Valor right now, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's effectively in maintenance mode, right? That's, you know, I mean, that's not really a bad thing. It doesn't really affect them. I don't think, especially as they're willing to do the work to fix any of the issues they encounter. Yeah, so they're able to do the work. You know, the way he explained it, that they'd brought in most of the developers, or at least they were working side by side. And you know, if it's in maintenance mode, and you've basically got to a point where no new uh, sort of hotness needs to be added to it, you're happy with that. But of all the different languages or um, code bases that people use, or libraries and things like this. There's no guarantee that any of them won't stay. You know, Joe made the point about what if Ubuntu fucked off and he, you know, said that we could rebase on Debian. But at the same time, you could just say, what if Debian fucked off? Or what if the Linux kernel fucked off? Or what if GNU fucked off? You know, you, you could use that point for anything that you're sat upon. And the whole point of open source is that you use other bits of software and build upon them and share and share upstream and downstream. And there's that sort of, you know, I'm just saying you could you could point that finger at any bit of software that anyone's based off. So it, it becomes a bit sort of meta and ran around in circles. Uh, I just wondered whether, like I say, if everyone who's writing in Rust and in five years' time, Rust is just a forgotten language, are you supposed to keep on moving to the next one, to the next one, to the next one? Maybe they've just 
found, you know, laid their hat, made their home, and and they're just settling with that. Or do you just stick with C? Well, that was the other thing I was thinking was, you know, Ike can be smug because C's so low, it's not going to go anywhere. It, you know, it's 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 unchanging, especially as the kernel's written in it. Whereas if you're going to use one of these languages, which uh, is more and more abstracted, you're more likely to have this problem that it moves to the new hotness, aren't you? By the way, I'm not being smug about C. It's just what I use. <laughs> it's what <laughs> works for smug. me, right? You know, I, uh, go on now. No, it's just what works for me. And I think that's the important thing for a lot of people writing any form of code, like what works for them. That's kind of what it comes down to. They're tools, aren't they? And if they still allow you to build what you need to build, then... <laughs> what if your tool is JavaScript and you write a whole desktop environment in it? Um... <laughs> you become big enough that no one... You can carry on writing it even if everyone else fucks off. So I think I think Google could do that quite happily. Yeah. Well, anyway, as for elementary OS, I went into that chat with Daniel somewhat skeptical to say the least. That's why it felt like a bit of a grilling. But I think he did well. He, he did well to answer most of my concerns, if not all of them. And either the project is doing it right, or he's just very good at convincing people otherwise. And there are a lot of people using it very happily. And he's introducing a lot of people who are coming from proprietary operating systems to it. So, you know, fair play he's, he's bringing people into linux and as i say he the whole elementary os team are bringing people into linux so you can't really knock it right let's get out of here um so we'll be back in two weeks without jesse because he'll be in america celebrating um genocide day uh so until then then i've been joe i've been jesse yeehaw <laughs> i've been <laughs> <Salem>. <laughs> i'm still lucky sadly see you later